Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. That's the New York Philharmonic playing Ravel's Bolero, which is probably more associated with sexy time than with pandemics. Uh, but the re- there's a reason we're playing it. Uh, we are playing it because the musicians are playing uh, the Bolero in their own homes in a message of gratitude to healthcare workers on the front lines uh, of the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, we are playing it because it fits right into the conversation we're going to have today with Nicholas Christakis, uh, a physician and sociologist. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale, where he is a Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science. He's the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. So, first of all, welcome to our show, Nicholas Christakis. Thank you, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, tell me and the audience why it is that we are playing the Philharmonic and Ravel's uh, Bolero. I, I contextualized it a little bit, but uh, why would it be important? Well, I think I'm really glad you did that. Actually, it's such a nice opening. You know, plagues are not a novel experience for our species. They're just new to us. You know, we think that this way that we have of living right now is so alien and, un- and unnatural but actually plagues have been a part of the human condition since time immemorial. And one of the oldest ideas about plagues is that, or oldest conversations about plagues is do they bring us together or do they tear us apart? So one set of arguments is that they tear us apart, that it's sort of every man for himself, that as people begin to die, especially in great numbers, people become more selfish and more insular there are many accounts during the medieval period of bubonic plagues where people would, you know, be abandoned in the streets, you know, by their families, where there'd be violence and hatred and theft. Uh, people would enter houses of, of individuals that were weakened by the plague and steal their belongings. And there was a lot of attention to the, the kind of evil that plagues could bring. And they can do that. But equally, there was a lot of attention to the fact that the plague could serve as a kind of unifying theme, highlighting our common humanity. After all, we're all vulnerable to this infection. The germ doesn't discriminate itself. It doesn't intrinsically discriminate. It's happy to kill any of us that it, that it infects. And that since we all are facing this common threat, perhaps we would all you know, work together and bond with each other in order to repel the invader. And this idea has also been noted for centuries. And we've seen both of these ideas and both of these tensions in the 21st century with COVID-19. And there are many examples of how people have worked together. And one of the examples that I discuss is, is this symbolic working together of orchestras around the world with musicians isolated in their own homes who came together despite their separation, ironically, to make music, to make beautiful music. And many of these videos went viral, as people probably know, 
and very haunting pieces. I have very limited musical ability, so I don't know how they can do it even when they're in the orchestra, let alone how they were able to keep time and do it when they were separated. So this is an example of the human capacity to come together during times of stress. It's funny because at the end of my notes for today, I'd written, so is Nicholas at this point more of a philanthrope or a misanthrope? And I'm still going to ask that question at the end, but you've begun to answer it already. Do uh, plagues bring us together or tear us apart? The answer is yes, they do both. So I, I think before we, first of all, there's so much in here that's fascinating. And, and to your point too, I thought one of the things I thought, thought was terrific that you pointed out is that for religious people, you know, on the one hand, the play can drive you towards faith, and churches have worked hard to also do their own version uh, of what the uh, Philharmonica did. But plagues also remind you, as you just suggested, that the pious and the reprobate are treated essentially the same way by the virus, which yes. can, in fact, occasion crises of faith. Yeah, go ahead and talk about that. No, I was just going to say that it's a long-standing observation that during times of plague, uh, religiosity rises. You know, there are no atheists in foxholes. When people are afraid, when death is afoot, when they're suffering, people uh, very naturally turn to religion. And this has been seen again since time immemorial that religion rises during times of plague. There's a lot of intersection, actually fascinating intersection. It's a bit of a digression, but of religion and plague. During the bubonic plague in Europe, one of the things that plagues do is they also lead to a recrudescence of blame. Uh, always the question comes, well, who can we blame for this? And one of the reasons for this is, is people find it more comforting to imagine that there's some human that they can blame than to imagine that it's an implacable God that is punishing them or that it's the inexorable workings of nature. So there's a, there's a lot of sort of psychological rationale for why we seek to blame others. And this is seen again since time immemorial uh, with HIV, you know, People wanted to blame homosexuals or Haitians or IV drug users, which is ridiculous. I mean, the, the germ just infects us. We're all human beings. Or during, um, you know, syphilis was called the Spanish pox by the French and was called the French pox by the Spaniards, you know. And, and polio was often blamed, uh, you know, polio epidemics in this country were often blamed on immigrant populations. This is a very common theme is to blame outsiders. And during the bubonic plague, of course, there was a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism in Europe. And uh, many thousands of Jews were put to death in, in, in some cities in the 14th century. They were ordered either to convert or were buried alive. And thousands died. And there was a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism. But there was actually quite a far-sighted, unbelievably, Pope, Pope Clement VI, who, um, who reasoned that um, it was very unlikely that the Jews had brought the, were the, truly to blame for the plague because they were dying in equal numbers. <laughs> you know, they were just as likely to die as the Catholics. And, that, and the Pope reasoned that it was therefore unlikely that they were actually to blame for the plague and that, in fact, they should not be put to death. And actually, during the plague, the Pope himself just displayed tremendous personal heroism, you know, unafraid, helping, tending to the sick, uh, while countless numbers of people died. So many people died. There were so many bodies that the rivers were full of bodies, and he had to consecrate the entire river because they didn't have time to do last rites for everyone. We should, incidentally, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, it's a bad germ. It will kill about 1% of the people who get it and who develop symptoms from it on average, approximately. We can discuss this more if you want. 
And that's a bad germ. I need to be very clear, but it's nowhere near as bad as it could have been. There's no God-given reason this germ isn't 10 or 30 times deadlier. We, we could have been facing a 21st century equivalent of the bubonic plague, something like in the movie Contagion, mm -hmm. which is actually an amazing movie in my view, we could have been facing. So we're lucky that we're not harmed even more than we already are being harmed by this. We'll get to Contagion. I, I think it's a pretty amazing movie too, and I've rewatched it a few times since this uh, all got started. Uh, but, um, you know, just to the point that you were making before, uh, I, I want to respond to it or just sort of say one of the fascinating things that you say in the book and I should say that since this whole thing started, I never thought I'd interview so many virologists and epidemiologists. And I can't, if I were to list all the people who've been on the show now, you'd be amazed and you'd know all their names too. Uh, but I don't think, know if I've heard anybody make the point that you make in the book, which is that in a way, the virus, the virus has just in the same sense that somebody like Richard Dawkins can talk about a gene having an interest, uh, which is not a literal interest, but sort of a, a passive interest. The virus doesn't really have an interest in killing its host. And in fact, what the virus wants to do is propagate. And if it kills too many hosts too quickly, uh, it, it'll stop itself. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. But it was sort of interesting that, you know, in a way, the fact that it's not quite as decisively deadly as some of the pathogens preceding it may in fact extend its quote-unquote useful yeah. life. This virus is, it, it has a number of uh, fiendish properties. You're right that if the virus is too deadly or kills us too quickly, it's bad from the point of view of the virus. So Ebola, for example, outbreaks in West Africa that can kill 50 or 80% of the people they infect very quickly burn out because they, they kill their victims so fast, their victims don't have a chance to spread the pathogen. From the point of view of the virus, it doesn't want to kill us. What it really wants to do is make us sick, but have us move around so we encounter other people to whom we can spread the virus. And, that, and it's those variants of the virus, those mutations or those species of the virus, those varieties of the virus that uh, come to predominate, the less lethal ones, the more spreadable ones. Actually, lethality and spreadability are slightly different, but for the sake of argument now, the point is the virus doesn't really have an interest per se in killing us. In fact, if we die too fast, as you've suggested, it interrupts the transmission of the virus. Now, this particular pathogen, SARS-CoV-2, is in a way in a kind of a sweet spot. You know, it, 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 it's deadly enough that it's quite serious, but it's not so deadly like Ebola or, or smallpox outbreaks in Native American populations that, you know, would kill 95% of the people. I mean, just they would be annihilated. People thought Armageddon was upon them. So high was the toll of death. It's not so deadly. It's, it's right in the sweet spot that makes it a problem. And in addition, this virus has another very sneaky, has a few other sneaky properties. It causes, it has very protean manifestations, which has made it very difficult for us from a public health point of view to, to combat. Let me, let me give you an illustration. Imagine there are two populations of people. Po population A has 1,000 people. 10 of them get sick with a virus, seriously sick, and one of them dies. That's population A. In population B, you have 1,000 people. 100 of them get sick. Uh, 90 of them get a mild illness. 10 of them, again, get a serious illness, and one of them dies. Now, in population A, you would say one out of 10 people who got sick died. You would say that that disease had a 10% case fatality rate. And in population B, 100 people got sick, remember, and one of them died. You would say that 
only 1% died. It had a 1% case fatality rate. So, so far, people are probably listening and saying, yeah, what does that mean? Well, here's the thing. Which world would you rather be in? Would you rather be in population A or population B? And if you think clearly, you'd rather be in population A, in which 10% of the people who got sick died, than in population B, in which 1% of the people who got sick died. Why? Well, because population B is the same as population A, except for an additional 90 people got sick, got mildly sick. So you have one death, 10 serious, nine serious illnesses, and also 90 trivial illnesses, whereas in population A, you only have the death and the serious illness. Population B is clearly worse overall. Right. And with, with SARS-CoV-2, with COVID-19, we also know that the quote-unquote trivial illnesses often are not trivial. In, in other words, people who get sick and don't die often get very sick, often have long-haul conditions, often have uh, renal complications, cardiac complications, yes. thromboembolic complications. I mean, in fact, getting sick and not dying from this particular disease is no guarantee uh, of a comfortable life. Yes, that's also true. And, and there's some estimates that leaving aside the short COVID and long COVID issue, which is what's the nature of your acute illness, some fraction of people, even after they recover, will have some form of disability, as you said, renal or cardiac or neurologic or pulmonary or pancreatic disability. And um, we don't know the numbers yet, but perhaps five times as many people as die will actually have some kind of disability, which is going to be a serious problem for our society going forward. But my point is, in addition to the point you just made, is that the protean manifestations, the fact that this virus can do everything from make you asymptomatic to mildly symptomatic to seriously ill to, to dead, has muddied the waters. Because people look around and they say, well, many people get the disease and nothing bad happens to them. So they don't take it as seriously. Ironically, if the virus had a narrower range of symptoms, even if it killed the same fraction of the population, we'd be better able to combat it. So going back to your original question, this virus has an intermediate lethality of about 1% and has this, these protean manifestations. And both of these things contribute to our difficulties in combating the virus. And just to remind everyone, things like bubonic plague would kill 30 or 50 or 70% or of the people. And the reason bubonic plague came back wave after wave for centuries, actually, in Europe, is the presence in that case of additional actors in the form of the flea and in the form of the rats that transmitted the fleas. So there were additional species involved, which is one of the reasons that bubonic plague stayed so lethal rather than gradually becoming, you know, humans becoming more adapted to it and the pathogen becoming less lethal. Okay, there's so many things I want to talk to you about. And yeah. Time is limited. So I'm going to shift gears a little bit from where I thought I was going to go. Maybe we can come back to this because I wouldn't mind coming back to the issue of scapegoating and the way we kind of talk and think about China. But before we do that, you know, I'm going to actually call your attention to something that happened recently, well after the completion of your book. By the way, I'm talking to Nicholas Christakis. His book is Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. So Recently, on January 6th, we had this siege uh, of the U.S. Capitol and so many horrible things happened that day. But to me, one of the images that haunts me is uh, that once the members of Congress went into lockdown, 
uh, there was a Democratic member of Congress. I think her name is Lisa Blunt Rochester. Yeah, she's a Delaware Democrat. And there's a video of her approaching uh, her colleagues, offering blue surgical masks. Uh, and you can see Republican members of Congress turning her down and saying no. And and since then, we've uh, as of today, I should say we're recording this a little bit before we're going to air it. But uh, three different members of Congress uh, who were there in the lockdown have now tested positive uh, for for COVID-19. We don't know for a fact yet that that's how they got it, but it seems like a, a fairly good likelihood. And, you know, so there you have this situation where people are refusing uh, to do something to make themselves safer and to make other people safer. And, and it ties in a little bit to a quote uh, you have in the book by a psychotherapist or psychologist named Matthew Lieberman. Our brains are built to ensure that we will come to hold the beliefs and values of those around us. So one of the things I notice in that video is you sort of get the feeling that those five Republican members of Congress, if, if, they were, if one of them was alone, he or she might have taken the mask. But yes. it's kind of like, you know, you can almost see it looking at them that they don't want to take the mask in front of yes. the other people. So comment. Well, I think that from my perspective, the politicization of masks in our society is absurd. Uh, other societies did not politicize mask wearing. They may have politicized other things, but not mask wearing. It People need to understand that it was sort of arbitrary that we politicized mask wearing and that it became either a symbol of your neighborliness and community mindedness or a symbol of your liberty and freedom. Uh, and that this broke down along party lines you know, masks are just a technological tool for the interruption of aerosol transmission uh, or droplet transmission in particular, to be specific. And uh, and they absolutely reduce the are, are useful to the person who's wearing it and they reduce they're useful to the other people near the person who's wearing it. So it's good for both parties to wear a mask. I also think in the, that particular episode, it's just common courtesy. You know, if an elderly person and one of the representatives was a cancer survivor, I think in her 70s ask you, could you please put on a mask? I don't see a reason not to, you know? I mean, it's like, what would be your reason not to put on the mask? It, it's just not polite it, for, from my perspective. You know, it's like being asked to stop smoking in an enclosed environment. You can go out in the open air and smoke, but if you're in an enclosed environment, someone asks you to stop smoking, it's kind of polite to stop smoking uh, because you're imposing on them in a way. So, so that episode, and furthermore, there's also a national security issue, which is we like there was with the White House outbreak. There was a super spreading event at the White House. We don't want super spreading events among our legislators. I mean, this is just irresponsible. These people have a special obligation to stay well if they can and to use every tool at their disposal in order for there to be a smooth operation of our government. Right. So, thought, uh, you know, I, I just want to sort of also say that part of this and part of the politicization is that, you know, it started with a basically kind of an argument about, about whether this was a serious situation or not, if you go back to February, yes. March. So, and, you know, I think just since we're going to be talking about movies all day, apparently, you know, the the mayor of Amity in Jaws, the reason that he resonates with us is because we meet him again and again throughout our lives. He's the guy saying, there's no shark out there. Everybody goes swimming, enjoy the beaches. And that was very much, I, I think, the message going in there, right? That this yes. is not that serious serious a situation and somehow or other that was transmitted via verbal droplets into the idea of not wearing masks. Agree? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a correct analysis. And I think it's important to realize that these properties of denial and lies have been features of plagues for thousands of years. You know, the, the, the germ spreads from person to person and right behind it are lies. 
Uh, you, if you think of plague as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, you can think of mendacity as its squire, uh, <laughs> just traipsing right behind it, like Sancho Panza and Don Quixote. And, you know, I think one of the ironies is that is that people also, the citizenry also has a duty. You know, they want to be lied to. Nobody wants, mm-hmm. nobody likes the fact that we're dealing with this. Let's be honest. I mean, nobody wants to be dealing with this situation. Everybody wishes we didn't have to deal with this serious pandemic. And to the extent that we'd like to be lied to by our leaders, we get leaders who lie to us. But that doesn't mean that we can't hold our leaders responsible for their mendacity. And it is abundantly clear that the president of the United States and, and it is, so people say, well, you know, other countries also did poorly, like, like England and Italy. And it's true. But, you know, I had higher expectations. We're the United States of America. Why on earth we should do poorly in coping with a pandemic? I, I don't know. Other, some other countries did well, like Germany or even little Greece did well, let alone island nations, of course, like Taiwan and New Zealand, who've done phenomenally well. Why couldn't we be one of the ones that did well? And to do that would have required real leadership and would have required leveling with the American people, would have required calling them to sacrifice, saying, you know, this unpleasant thing has happened. We are going to have to work together. We are going to suffer as a people as a result of this virus entering our species. But here is how we are going to be triumphant, by collaborating, by making sacrifices, by doing what we need to do, every citizen doing something. An effort to educate the people and help them to work together, I think, would have been the optimal idea. But instead, we now know that the president was lying to the American people. And we know this. We know he was briefed back in December uh, about the nature of this pandemic and its likely pandemic uh, spread. And which isn't surprising because people like me knew by the end of January that it was going to be a serious respiratory pandemic. And I I do not have the NSA and the CDC at my disposal. So you damn well better believe that the president of the United States should be better briefed than I and other epidemiologists were. And we now know he was briefed and nevertheless chose to to, uh, minimize this threat, which is not, which is a, which is a, a, a violation of of his duty, ditto with all of the other people, all the other senior leadership. Just to be clear, there were other leaders in the area. Uh, for example, I, I don't know why Mario Cuomo wasn't didn't act more swiftly. Initially, people said, oh, well, Wuhan is different than the rest of the world. Well, maybe you could say that, but then how do you explain Italy? You know, here's a rich Western democracy that's brought to its knees in February. What made us think that New York and Houston and San Francisco, you know, and uh, you pick, uh, weren't going to be the same. I, I did think that was a very interesting part of your book uh, when you yeah. kind of critiqued the um, New York response. I'd like to take Mario Cuomo off the hook. It was Andrew Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, but the, oh, the, sorry. Yeah. the point. <laughs> yeah, I grew up. You know, I'm dating myself. It was I know. Yeah. The the uh, but the point you make is really interesting about you know because I think at a certain point Andrew Cuomo was kind of lionized as somebody who was like finally taking this stuff seriously. The uh, your I'm not going to summarize it right now, but your book has a very interesting analysis of what happened and how even a week's delay may have mattered a, a, a tremendous amount. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come back with more of Nicholas Christakis. This uh, conversation is going to fly by too fast. I can already tell, but that's a good thing too.
So at this point, I think we have to believe this is respiratory. Maybe fomites, too. What's that, fomites? Uh, it refers to transmission from surfaces. The average person touches their face two or three thousand times a day. Two or three thousand times a day? Three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doorknobs, water fountains, elevator buttons, and each other. Those things become fomites. Is this something we want to release to the press, respiratory and fomites? And how's the public going to react to that? Hard to say. A plastic shark in a movie will keep people from getting in the ocean, but a warning on the side of a pack of cigarettes... We're going to need to walk the government through this before we start to freak everybody more. out. I mean, <laughs> we can't even tell people right now what they should be afraid of. We tried that with swine flu, and all we did was get healthy people scared. It's the biggest shopping weekend of the year. I think we need to consider closing the schools down. And who stays home with the kids? All right, there you go. Contagion and a reference to Jaws all in one fabulous clip. Uh, our guest is Nicholas Christakis, a physician and sociologist. He directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale, where he's the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science. He's the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. So, you know, one of the really interesting points that you make in the book, I mean, well, one of the themes of the book is this idea that, look, we've seen this stuff before. Maybe this particular generation or cluster of generations hasn't really seen it that much before, but it's part of the human condition. We're going to have pandemics. We're going to have plagues. You know, and and we've talked a little bit. Uh, you hear it there in that clip from the very prescient movie Contagion. We talked a little bit about how it's it's inconvenient to have to tell people that they're in a terrible situation. And, and one of the ways that you analogize is, although it was a different kind of a situation because there was a more selected population affected, but during the beginning of the AIDS crisis, and for that matter, you could say almost the middle of the AIDS crisis, there was this kind of government response, right? We're just not going to talk about this as though it's super serious, with the exception of one brave su uh, Surgeon General. But, uh, but Nicholas Christakis, uh, refresh our memories on this. Well, you're alluding to Everett Koop, who um, was a very conservative Surgeon General who was appointed by Ronald Reagan, partly because of his opposition to abortion, which was the litmus test for appointing him. And when the HIV pandemic struck, to everyone's surprise, on the right and on the left, Everett Koop, as a true doctor, said, "It's I'm the Surgeon General of everybody. It's not my job to moralize about why people get sick. I'm a Surgeon General of the heterosexuals and the homosexuals and of the whites and of the blacks and of the rich and of the poor. It's a very famous statement that he made. And the right, and he said, and, I, and, I, and we don't have any treatment for this. There's no cure for HIV. All we have is non-pharmaceutical interventions, which is to reduce sexual contact, the number of partners you have, and uh, use um, and reduce transmission by wearing condoms or by cleaning your needles. And I'm not going to moralize about this. I'm not going to say that IV drug users deserve to die or that homosexuals deserve to die. And people were stunned <laughs> that, that he took this very pragmatic, to his infinite credit, um, position. And what was interesting, again, is that um, disease always has this sort of social, moral, and historical kind of lens through which it's seen, especially sexually transmitted diseases, which assume great moral freight, you know. But what we're talking about now, for example, earlier we were talking about the politicization of mask wearing, and now we're talking about the kind of moralization of, of HIV, is the fact that there's always a kind of social factor when we're thinking about infectious diseases, ironically, that it's not just about, unfortunately, it's not just a pragmatic 
biological issue. It also becomes a social issue. It always does. And it involves these types of uh, features. Anyway, uh, Coop did a particularly uh, good job in what he was doing, but our government did not. And I'll just say one thing before I shut up. It's a great irony that HIV happened to initially take root in amongst the in the gay community. If conversely, it had first taken root amongst heterosexual community, gays would have been seen as relatively immune because, <laughs> you know, the disease would have spread amongst straight people and gay people were, let's say, having sex mostly with each other and straight people were having sex mostly with each other. The, the epidemic, you know, how would the narrative have been then? You know, like, you know, think about all of the awful narration of homosexuality that took place in the early days of the HIV pandemic where gays were seen as by by some people who I deplore were seen as somehow deserving of the death and this was a punishment for their sins and all this stuff what would people have said if it had been the reverse anyway the point is that there is always unfortunately this kind of politics and morals that uh, that affect how we see infectious disease Right. And I want to sort of pick away at a couple of those things. But before that, I will quickly tell you a story which you can file away. So during the 1980s, at my main job at that time, I was a newspaper reporter and columnist for a daily newspaper. And I remember sitting in a whole newsroom meeting about how we were going to cover AIDS. And at one point, either I or somebody else talked about, well, how, you know, we've got to start telling people about the role of condoms. Uh, and I remember the managing editor saying, saying, we haven't really decided that we're going to mention that word in the newspaper. And, and <laughs> in, the, in the 1980s, newspapers were a much more prudish place than they are now. I mean, yes. the standards and practices, the style books were much tougher, uh, and they barely acknowledged sex in a yes. lot of ways. But I remember sort of thinking, we're not going to use the word condoms when yes. people are dying from this disease. But, yeah. you know, Nicholas, I think the point that it makes is, you know, you would think that in a pandemic, limiting death as much as you can, preserving life as much as you can would be the priority. But it's always interesting how many other priorities people have. I mean, I think we're kind of seeing that now that like, I understand people need to make a living and stuff like that. But, you know, keeping restaurants open turns out to be like really important. And, yes. and, and maybe we're willing to pay a price in human life to keep restaurants open. Well, I think I mean, I think here's the thing. We haven't had an honest conversation, nor have we had fully rational policymaking. I mean, you know, we should, as a society, jointly shoulder the burden of this infection. And if that involves paying extra money to people who lose their jobs in the form of unemployment benefits, or perhaps especially people who lose their jobs in particularly hard-hit industry, industries like the restaurant industry or the travel or hospitality industries, then I think we should do that. In other words, I don't want us to get into a situation where we think, because real people, of course, and you're not suggesting this, but I'm just saying mm. tens of millions of Americans have lost their jobs because of this pandemic. And in an ideal world, we would have done a very sober-minded, apolitical kind of calculation about how many lives are saved if we you know, close businesses or close schools or whatever it is that we're proposing to do. And we'll do the numbers and compute. And how many lives do we lose? Because, of course, poverty is uh, and and joblessness also caused the lo loss of life through suicide, through malnutrition, through deferred medical care. There are all kinds of ways in which being poor affects your life prospects. And so, public health is a kind of a rough utilitarian kind of discipline. You know, the objective is to minimize the loss of life, like on a battlefield. And so, we should have done those calculations. We should have communicated them honestly to the American people. And then we should have done everything in our power to mitigate the consequences among those who were suffering. Now, let me be clear. What plagues do 
is they they take our lives and they take our livelihoods and they take our way of life. This is what plagues have always done. And different ones of us will be called to sacrifice in different ways. Uh, essential workers would be taking more risks. Other people would lose their jobs. Rich people should pay more taxes for the love of God. I mean, that's the least they can do. People should wear their masks. We need to provide special schooling for people that really, for children that cannot easily stay home when they need to be schooled. We needed ideally a very rational, customized policy that asked everyone to bear some sacrifices and tried as best we could to minimize the burdens on people to the extent we can. All of us realizing, unfortunately, that there was no way to fully mitigate the suffering, that in fact, this bad thing had happened, a new deadly pathogen had been introduced into our midst, and incidentally will now circulate among us forever, and the world had changed. We happened to be alive during a moment where a once-in-a-century event was taking place, a global respiratory pandemic, and we had to be called to action, I think, as a people, to rise to the occasion, to show maturity. Like, it's children who want to fantasize that nothing bad is happening. The mature adult perspective recognizes that the world is as it is, and we have to act accordingly. We can't pretend like nothing is happening. And then ideally work together as a citizenry, ideally with capable leadership, to fight the threat that we were facing, the common threat. So during AIDS, you know, because in fact there were these two subcultures that were affected by it, it was possible for some people to regard that as kind of breakage, uh, as kind of, you know, a set of consequences that maybe society could kind of live with as opposed to having to spend a whole lot of money or change a whole lot of things. This time around, I should say that since this thing started, I have made a point on social media of joining every damn libertarian discussion group and COVID denier discussion group and freedom rally, uh, you know, message board that I can because I want to know what people are saying. And it's kind of interesting what breakage is this time, Nicholas. I mean, you, I routinely run into people saying, well, this mainly affects people over 65 or they yes. pick some age, you know, and I'm sitting there, I'm 66 years old. I'm thinking, so what are you supposed to make banana bread out of me or throw me out? I mean, I like, I, yes. I it's, it's just amazing how casually yes. a, at least a subgroup of American people said, well, this is only going to kill old people. We don't have to worry about it. Yes. I think that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's again, this, this thing of where always someone else is going to bear the burden or someone else can be blamed. I have to say as a parent, I have children, I have four children, Erica and I have four children with a very wide age range from uh, 10 to, to 28. And as a parent, I am very relieved that I don't have to worry that if my kids were to get infected, they are unlikely to die. That's great. I mean, the, this pathogen needn't have been that way. It could have had a U-shaped mortality function where it killed the very young and the very old and spared working age people. This pathogen kills neither the very young nor working age people and tends to kill the old more. Although, I'll come, to, I'll come back to a little wrinkle on that in a moment. But my relief at the fact that I don't need to worry so much about the death of young people doesn't mean that I should be indifferent to the death of older people. I mean, those people are our neighbors, our grandparents, our parents, our friends. And there are citizens who've paid taxes. They have every right to expect to be protected and to protect themselves from a deadly germ. So I, I reject this notion that it's, quote, just old people. I wholly reject it. And I actually think one of the reasons we've had, we haven't taken this germs as seriously, again, going back to the first part of our conversation, is the fact that at least in the initial wave, it tended to kill people who were already out of sight. 
about 40% of the initial of the deaths in the first wave took place in nursing homes among people who may have had limited social contacts and or whose deaths we did not see. And I think this also sapped our public will in combating the virus. Before I move on, before we move on to another topic, I just want to return to the issue of young people with COVID. It's very important to recognize that death is a property of the aged. Death afflicts the aged more than the young at all ages. In other mm -hmm. words, young people, if you're in your 20s, you have a low risk of dying of any cause in the next year. So therefore, you shouldn't be so relieved that you have a low risk of dying if you get COVID. In fact, getting COVID increases your low risk of dying if you're in your 20s by, let's say, 30 or 50 percent. That's a big rise in your risk of death. You should not be indifferent to getting COVID if you are young. You should take it seriously, just like older people should. Some of the observational or statistical studies that JAMA and some other places have done have had some interesting stats about that. For example, COVID, I believe, is the third leading cause of death among people between the ages of 45 to 54. So yeah, it, it, as you say, it's like, how many of you are going to die? Well, how many more of you are, are going to die now that there's COVID? That's the more relevant question, not uh, not the yes, one that it's people seem be, to be asking. The COVID-19 pandemic will be one of the leading killers on an annualized basis in our society. One out of every 460 residents of the state of New Jersey have died. That's I mean, it's and similarly for North Dakota, it's absurd. I mean, the, yeah. the toll of mortality and in the end, between half a million and a million Americans before this thing is over will die. And five times as many will have some kind of disability. I mean, it is a catastrophe. It is an absolute catastrophe. And the only reason more people don't yet see it is that certain sectors of our economy have continued to function. Certain occupations have continued to be practicable. And the numbers of death, while very large, have not been on the bubonic plague a level. But I think it's going to catch up with us. You know, I think more and more people are going to know someone who died. And as that happens, they're going to begin to take it more and more seriously. But unfortunately, that is going to come a little too late for us to more effectively deal with this. All right. I we say we, that vaccines. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go on. We got to grab a break here. I just was told that we have 11 minutes left in the show and I have 70 minutes worth of material that I need to cover. <laughs> so um, we're going to take a quick break right here just so we'll have some time for our third segment. Nicholas Christakis will be back after this. We are back. Uh, this is Colin McEnroe. Uh, before we continue, I have to thank a few people. Uh, Kat Pastor is there in the studio, making it possible for us to, A, get shows done and put them on the air uh, or have them live on the air, uh, and also making it possible for us to work remotely. And when I say us, I mean Betsy Kaplan, uh, who is the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, producer of this episode, and uh, career-wise, prior to this, a nurse. Always good to have a nurse uh, as your producer during the pandemic. Uh, all right. We're talking to uh, Nicholas Christakis right now. His book is Apollo's Arrow. It is really one of the fascinating early kind of attempts to to, to create a, a history and do some deep thinking uh, of the moment that we're in. So up it's called Apollo Zero, the profound and enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live. All right. So we have a little bit of time to talk about changes. And maybe I can fold into that topic, uh, Nicholas, vaccines. 
Because in a way, I, first of all, on the day that we're recording this, I think I just got added to 1B like like an hour ago. I think mm. <laughs> I think I might be 1B. I, it's sort of a, it's, it sounds like a draft number, but it's actually Yes, it does, so, doesn't it? Yeah. So, um, you know, I mean, these two early vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, these are mRNA vaccines. They were scaled up in this incredibly flashbang uh, amount of time. And it seems also that they're modifiable so that if the virus did, which it has not done so far, mutate to a point of being able to escape the vaccine, they could tweak it back into relevance very quickly. I mean, is one of the changes here that that this is going to be a new era of vaccines, which are uh, faster to scale up and, and easier to adapt than what we've had in the past? Yes, yes. I think this platform is unbelievable. It's truly miraculous. I don't know whether how much people appreciate how it's the investment of decades of scientific research and uh, money uh, spent and thousands of scientists and doctors working together and patients and rolling in trials and uh, over the years that have gotten us to the point where we're able to do this. We are the first generation of human beings to face this ancient threat of a, of a plague that is, is able in real time to invent a specific countermeasure that works. It is unbelievable. But I have to emphasize that I do not want people hearing this to think that, oh, well, all is well and good. You know, this is the, this is the end of the problem. We are not at the beginning of the end of this pandemic. We are just at the end of the beginning, at the opening act. This, this vaccine, these vaccines, and there's several and more will come online, amazing as they are, will be very useful but we have to recognize that the virus is still spreading and the vaccine is going to take, I would say, another year before we can uh, manufacture enough doses, distribute enough doses and persuade at least 50 percent of Americans to take the vaccine, uh, which will be required if we're to reach an important milestone known as herd immunity that will kind of take the wind out of the sails of the pandemic. And meanwhile, the virus is still spreading. So I think we have another year till the end of 2021, approximately, before we, 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 um, during which time we're going to have to be continuing to live in this sort of this changed world with wearing masks, intermittent school and business closure, physical distancing, and so on. And this that that's the immediate pandemic period. And then sometime at the beginning of 2022, we'll transition to the intermediate period when the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus will be behind us. But we're still going to have to mop up. We're going to have to recover from the psychological, social, and economic damage done by the virus. Also, the clinical damage for the people that have disability. And that'll take a couple of years during this intermediate period. And then I think beginning around 2024, these are all approximate, of course, dates, and they're not punctuated in time, we'll enter the post-pandemic period, which I think will be a bit like the roaring 20s of the 20th century, you know, with the jazz era and so on. We'll, we'll have a kind of roaring 20s of the 21st century. All right. Well, that's a that's a long wait for the roaring 20s. And who knows what will have happened by then. But I should say the WHO agrees with you on the day of this taping. They have said herd immunity won't happen till the end of 2021. Uh, Eric Topol, who people ought to follow on uh, Twitter, has kind of basically said the same thing, that 2021 is the year of the mask. It's not the year of getting rid uh, of the mask. You know, there are other things that have changed, though, and maybe some good things. I mean, one of them, for example, uh, telemedicine. Uh, I think in your book, you quote somebody you know is saying that they accomplished more in two weeks or two months or something like that, then in five years of trying to get something uh, as effective for certain kinds of uh, healthcare deliveries uh, as telemedicine. Uh, di dilate upon that. Well, I mean, I think um, 
you know, there are many ways in which a time of plague is a, is a, an accelerator of innovations or changes that were already afoot. Um, you know, we're seeing accelerations in drone delivery. We're seeing accelerations in telemedicine. We're seeing um, uh, changes in, in work from home technology. You know, they were already, you know, all of these things are being stimulated by the stress that our society has been put under. So, so yes, I think medicine is going to change in a number of ways. I think the way we pay for medical care will also change because people realize that to, to have people's health care insurance and access tied to their employment doesn't make any sense in a time of, a, of an epidemic because during an epidemic, the economy crashes and people lose their jobs and therefore lose access to health care precisely the moment we want them to have access to health care, either because they're sick or in the case of a contagious disease, we need healthcare delivery to stop the contagion, right? We all have an interest during times of an epidemic in every one of us, you know, having good healthcare. So, you know, I think there are lots of changes that are going to take place in the in the healthcare system. I'll also highlight the fact that young doctors in training in a time of plague see a different meaning and see a different connection and are called upon to take different risks and it's very galvanizing. I won't say exciting exactly, but it's, it's sort of energizing. And I remember when I was a young doctor and um, I was a hospice doctor for many years, uh, taking care of people who were dying. But, but of course, during my training, which was in the, um, you know, in the, in the sort of late 1980s, you know, we were taking care of people with HIV. And, and at the time, you know, if you had a needle stick injury from someone with HIV, you could get the disease and it was a fatal condition. So, you know, we, we willingly took those risks, but, you know, we, we also had equipment. Uh, you know, I think uh, the lack of PPE in our healthcare system and our lack of preparedness was appalling and frankly immoral that we asked healthcare workers, many of whom, thousands of whom have died, by the way, which is no joke, uh, providing care to the rest of us. This is another, earlier we were talking about the sacrifices that people, different sectors had to make different sacrifices. Here now, the healthcare sector had to take risk their lives to care for the rest of us. And all we have to do is wear masks, for example, and mm. stay at home if we can, which we should do. So anyway, but the point is being a doctor during this time, I think is very energizing as well. So there's a lots of ways the healthcare system has changed and will change as a result of the pandemic. Although we should say, and we don't, we don't have time to go into this, but one of the more chilling things in your book is the thing where we basically repeated the mistakes of China early on that our somewhat corporatized healthcare system decided that being overwhelmed by a disease and not having enough PPEs wasn't on brand. So they were actually punishing doctors who said, we don't have enough PPEs. We don't, we have a real problem here. Uh, you know, that they, oh, they yeah, actually... I mean, that's a classic, that goes back to the conversation about denial. People right. think that you can beat this virus with lies which is ridiculous. We've only got two minutes left. I want you to be no. able to sum things up. So look, you know, you paint some really inspiring pictures. Uh, the, the factory in Pennsylvania where the workers stayed for like 28 days working round the clock, sleeping in the factory to make more sanitizer. But you also paint some pretty negative pictures. We just painted one right here. You know, I mean, uh, people who run hospitals trying to conceal what's going on inside the hospital, um, refusing to wear masks when you're locked down in Congress. So where do you come out? Philanthrope, misanthrope, how do you feel oh, about I'm, humankind? Oh, no, I'm so bullish on human beings. I mean, I, I wrote this other book called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. I marvel at our capacity for goodness. We are a remarkable species. Yes, it's true that we are 
capable of great evil. And I'm not ignorant of the fact that every century is replete with horrors, you know, with pogroms and inquisitions and warfare and violence and racism and, and slavery and cruelty and torture and all of these things. Of course, those happen. But equally, we are loving and kind and altruistic. And uh, we have friendship. We make friends with each other, which is very unusual in the animal kingdom. Other animals don't make friends with certain exceptions, but we do. And we teach each other things. We have all these wonderful qualities. So, so you know, and I think on balance, the good outweighs the bad about our species. And in fact, I, you know, I would love to close uh, with um, a quote that I use in the book. It's a very famous quote by, uh, you know, Albert Camus uh, in his book, The Plague. Uh, and the protagonist in, in the book is a Dr. Ryu who, uh, who is providing a chronicle of what he's seeing uh, with an outbreak of plague in Europe. And, uh, and here's what Camus writes. He goes, Dr. Ryu resolved to compile this chronicle so that some memorial of the injustice and outrage done them might endure and to state quite simply what we learn in time of pestilence, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. And that's very much how I feel. All right, that's where we're going to land the plane. Nicholas A. Christakis is the author of Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the, the Way We Live. Hey, great to talk to you. Thank you, Colin. Thank you so much for having me. 